In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. As the improvisation sort of sounds like a vapor dispersing, we're reminded again that the gospel helps us celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration. Um, It's rare that the Transfiguration falls on a Sunday. It's usually tucked into midweek services, and we uh, refer to it coming or mention it having passed. But it's nice to spend a Sunday morning thinking about these, um, these extremely important scriptures that find their way uh, through the Christian story that show up in art in, in many stained glass windows, um, not in ours actually, but in many a church that celebrates the Transfiguration every Sunday when they simply look up. We've just heard the story, this transfiguration that refers to a physical change, it seems, in the face of Jesus, but also in um, a kind of spiritual and spatial change. Um, The gospel is a little like a prism. We could look at it from various points of view. We could accentuate the importance of Moses and Elijah showing up in that appearance, bringing with them the full endorsement of the Hebrew scriptures and traditions. Um, We could look at that face that changes and what it means to, to have the face of God in our midst and in our lives. We could look at Peter's response as he is oh so practical. He sees Moses and Elijah, and rather than than be sidetracked by the mystical vision of their appearance, he decides, well, what is there to eat? Let's build a shack and worry about dinner. The way I approach this transfiguration this year, anyway, is a little more in the context of prayer Notice that in the transfiguration, there's a cloud that overshadows the mountain, that overtakes the disciples, that overtakes Jesus. And it's only after this cloud disperses that people sort of regain their balance and and know who they are. And Jesus especially learns who he is in a whole new way. It's after the transfiguration, uh, as his face has become like that of God, that the other disciples sort of notice who Jesus is and what he's about. And it seems that Jesus' own self-identity changes and opens up as he begins to get a glimpse of what his future will mean. In scriptural terms, he sets his face to Jerusalem. The disciples themselves are in some ways transfigured. They're changed as they begin to understand Jesus in a new way and understand their own role as disciples and followers. They don't fully understand, but they're beginning to learn that whenever there's confusion, whenever it feels like there's a cloud overtaking everything and everyone, there is a way forward. There's a way forward with Christ through the clouds, through the storms, through whatever murkiness there is. And through this relationship with God, through Christ, clarity comes in the end. The gospel talks about this singular transfiguration in all capitals. But I think the gospel also signals to us transfigurations 
times of encountering God that bring changes as well. We may not use that word, but I think we feel the experience just as dramatically. We, we may not always be alert to them, but there are these times in each one of our lives where God works through confusion, where God surrounds us with a cloud that, that protects us in a way, a way that not only um, can we understand later, but we can look back at and see that was God's protection. And then coming out of that cloud safely, we're brought into new clarity. The key to staying with God through the clouds, through the weather of any kind, the key to making this transition, the key to going up the mountain and getting off again, the key to transfiguration is at the very beginning of today's gospel, when we're told that Jesus and his friends go up the mountain to pray. It's prayer that keeps us open and alive to Christ. It's prayer that opens us to God and allows us to be with God and notice God in our lives. It's prayer that enables us to to endure the confusion because our focus is on God and not so much, or at least not solely, on whatever it is that's blowing around us and bothering us. Prayer sometimes takes us into the cloud where we can find God in a deeper way. And from there, prayer shows us the way out of the cloud, the way forward, the way down the mountain and into life. The 14th century anonymous monk wrote a text we refer to as the cloud of unknowing. And even in the title, it gives itself away. It's helped spiritual seekers for centuries ever after. The author counsels that sometimes our effort to know, our need to understand everything, to get it all sorted out in our head, can be the very thing that trips us up and is a stumbling block to our deeper knowledge of God. So the author of The Cloud of Unknowing talks about prayer in in very simple ways, ways that are sometimes described in what modern spiritual writers would call centering prayer or Christian meditation. But the prayer is simple. It's easy. It's not hard at all. It's simply sitting with God, being available to God, trying to unclutter our mind so that we're not constantly thinking and talking to God, but rather listening and being and breathing. We may think that sort of presence of God and presence with God is unattainable, and so we we might say out loud or, or inwardly, why bother? Maybe we've tried something like that or tried another kind of prayer in the past and and we felt like we failed at it or it didn't really work for us, whatever that might look like. It's especially at those times that the author of The Cloud of Unknowing suggests to us that heaven is closer than we ever might have imagined. The author writes, spiritually, Heaven is as near down as up, up as down, behind as before, before as behind, on this side as on that. So that whoever really wanted to be in heaven, she is there and then in heaven spiritually. For we run the highway and the quickest to heaven on our own desires and not on our own two feet. That speaks volumes about God's showing up for us in desire and less through our own willfulness. 
someone more contemporary who writes about prayer as a, a bishop in the Church of England, Stephen Cottrell. Bishop Cottrell writes about prayer and he captures nicely the way that we think so often about praying and and yet we tend to put it off, (laughs) or I do especially. Um, We imagine that tomorrow we'll have more time or or next Friday there's a space where we can put God in. (laughs) Or, Or when we go on vacation, we'll take that book that somebody mentioned. Later, there'll be time. Cottrell thinks of this as being a little bit like when one is driving down a highway. Whether you drive or not, I think you'll get the illusion. Um, Cottrell says it's, it's like when we're driving down the highway, we notice the gas gauge is moving toward empty. And there's a kind of game that we play with ourselves and the car. We see a sign saying that gas is available in five more miles. But we pass it, thinking we can go to that next one. <laughs> And we see another sign saying gas is available in 30 miles. And so we, we pass that one thinking we'll make it to the next one. And so we keep going. And if we do that enough, we fill up a lot of time and we think about getting gas, but we don't do it. And then before we know it, we're driving on empty or almost on empty Bishop Cottrell suggests that a lot of us live our spiritual lives that way. We think about stopping ahead and and staying and, and praying there, but we don't quite get there. Rather than putting a little bit of time into today, into carving out some space for God now. And so what might it look like to... To stop in the church for morning prayer one day, Monday through Thursday, 8.30 in the little side chapel. (laughs) Or what might it look like to go online using the the morning prayer app (laughs) or checking it when you're waiting on the train to come? What might it look like to go to another church near where you work or near where you live and stop in and pray with them morning prayer or evening prayer? Or or create some discipline of your own, maybe walking, maybe walking a pet, maybe listening to music. Doing any number of things can be your prayer as long as you dedicate it to God and make it holy. Prayer gives us that means to, to make it through any cloud and beyond. One transfiguration story that I've been spending a lot of time with recently has to do with a painting that's reproduced in this week's bulletin insert in the news from 316. If you got the online version, then you noticed it in color. There's a detail next to the little blurb that I wrote, and then there's the full image later in the newsletter. It's, a, it's an image of Cristobal de Villalpando's Transfiguration. It's this massive painting that's at the Metropolitan Museum, Museum of Art right now. It's in the layman wing, so if you go in, uh, go through the medieval area where they have the big Christmas tree and just keep walking directly back. It's in that sort of open octagonal space. And it's this massive altarpiece. You can't miss it. It's huge. The Metropolitan Museum teamed up with the Bank of Mexico, and they took the painting out of the cathedral in Puebla, Mexico, uh, restored it and cleaned it, reassembled it, and it showed in Mexico for a time, and now it's showing here through October. Um, I'm working on an angle where maybe we could take a group and visit it together and look at the art around it. We'll see if that works. But in the meantime, go and look at it when you get a chance. It's dazzling. But it's strange. 
It's especially strange if you notice the lower half. The Opando paints the story from the book of Numbers, this, um, this scary story of how the, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, lose their faith in God. And so God sends a plague of snakes, and they're bitten by these snakes. It's, it's not an image of God that we warm to or talk about. It's an old, old, primitive image of God. But whatever happened, those people felt like it somehow had something to do with their disobedience. And so they asked Moses, intervene for us. And so Moses did. And God tells Moses, take a serpent, cast it in bronze, and then lift it high on a pole. And have the people look at that bronze serpent. And when they look at it, they'll remember God and they'll be healed. It's a weird, weird story. (laughs) Jesus refers to it in his meeting with Nicodemus. And Jesus links it to the crucifixion in trying to unpack the, the salvation story for Nicodemus, what's happened and what's about to happen. Jesus says to him, for just as Moses raised an image of the serpent on a stick and people looked at it and were healed, so the Son of Man will be raised up high and people will find in him their healing And so Jesus links that story of the serpents with the crucifixion. But Viopando was the first artist ever to team it up with the transfiguration. It's as though Viopando saw in that healing somehow a transfiguration, a renewal, and related it to the transfiguration of Jesus. Viopando painted that painting at the request of the Bishop of Puebla, who is not particularly well-known, except for that painting and another conversation. You see, there was a famous nun living in um, a Mexican Hieronymite uh, convent, Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz, um, uh, Sister Joan. And Sor Juana is legendary in Mexico. Every young woman who has ever studied knows of Sor Juana. It's a shame more people don't know about her north of the border because she was the 17th century largely self-taught nun eventually, but she was a philosopher and a theologian and a poet and a playwright and a composer. She was sort of the the 17th century equivalent of the poet laureate for vice-regal Mexico, New Spain. Uh, She was the go-to person for every poem or every composition. She was well-read and well-spoken. She knew a number of different languages. And she commented on things that happen in the world. And she heard a particularly bad sermon. And she commented on it. And someone heard her and said, oh, please write that down. uh, Because your points are brilliant. Please make that writing. And so she wrote it. It was published in Spain and other parts of Europe. It got back to the Bishop of Puebla. And in a sort of 17th century version of of a Twitter fight, um, the bishop dashed off a letter condemning Sor Juana, saying, Now, now, sister, really you should spend your time in the convent reading the Bible and less philosophy. And remember those scriptures that say women shouldn't speak in church? Well, you should study that. Don't study these other philosophers and theologians. We've all heard that sort of line before. And so Sorwana got mad, probably, and got faithful, certainly, and she wrote a response, La Respuesta, which is famous. And in this response, she basically levels the bishop. (laughs) 
She brings up every woman who has sought and found education from classical times into what was her period. And her her response became an enormously famous letter, um, a, a tribute to the education of girls and women and a kind of thunderous piece that um, many people are inspired by today. And so that piece lives on. But I, I think of it in the context of this painting. Because here is this bishop who is busy repressing people around this way and that way. But he has the time to commission this painting, which probably had some political points to score in his mind. But Villopanda sees a larger vision. He sees healing in the midst of a cloud, healing in the midst of danger, of condemnation even, even in the face of death. Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz probably saw that painting, certainly knew about it, and finds a transfiguring power in the midst of condemnation, in the, in the midst of her censure, in the midst of wondering what life will be like now that she has crossed the bishop. Somewhat sadly and mysteriously, eventually Sor Juana did basically retire from public life, from, from writing, from, from teaching, from publishing, and she went more inside herself. She gave herself to her sisters, to the convent, And very sadly, she died ministering to her sisters during a plague just a few years later in this famous response to the bishop. But I think her her response is fueled by power of the transfiguration, as would be our response to critics, to those who would condemn us, to those who would not understand us, as would be our response in the face of difficulty or disaster or despair or disease or death itself. Whenever the cloud seems to hover around us, we have the gift of prayer. We have Christ's presence among us. We might find Christ through scripture or through poetry or through music or through our intellect like Sor Juana. We might find it through food, like Judith Jones. We might find it through friendship and company. However it is, we find a close relationship with God. There is power to be transfigured. On this Feast of the Transfiguration, may we, like the disciples, like Sor Juana, and like so many others, be strengthened through prayer to withstand any storm or any cloud that might come our way. May we always remember that prayer draws us into the cloud of God's presence and can help us move forward with new clarity. And may we, too, be transfigured and changed by God's love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.